Have you ever been wrong about yourself? I remember being at seminary and this guy, he challenged me to a one-on-one -on -one game of basketball. Now I had played basketball with him before. I knew that I was better than him. I knew that I could take him. I knew I could beat him. However, at the time, I wasn't really feeling 100%. I had this cold that was coming on, and so he was kind of talking some smack in the dorm. But I thought, hey, me at 75% can take him at 100%, no problem. So over to Baylor we went. We were playing ball one-on-one. -on -one. I got off to a fast start, but then I just wore down. My body was tired. It was sick, and, well, he smoked me. Uh, there's other times, like when I was first married, I thought, I know how to make a meatloaf. I'm going to make meatloaf for dinner. This is going to be great. I don't need a recipe. I know what I'm doing. And I start making this thing. And as it turns out, meatloaf, it doesn't rise like a bread loaf. So I ended up with just this flat, crusty meat cake. It wasn't really all that good. You know, there are often times that the world will tell us that we're experts about ourselves, that we know ourselves better than anyone else knows ourselves, that whatever we believe about ourselves, well, that's the ultimate authority. However, one of the things that we see throughout the scriptures is that the Bible, it has this category of self-deceived. Understand, modern America has no category for self-deceived. According to the scriptures, though, we can actually fool ourselves into adapting this false identity. And then we can live in this ignorance, in this darkness, in this foolishness. And there are times, frequently, actually, that we see in scripture where we need someone else to come in and to look at us and to speak truth to us, to speak the scripture, God's words to us. Because we're confused, sinful people, and it's God who knows us best. That truth, it doesn't originate from the inside out. The truth originates with God, and he's communicated to us in his word. And so he, we need his word to speak truth to us. We need people to come alongside and speak truth to us, that we need to live together in community. Because we all need someone to come alongside and sharpen us and to remind us and to speak God's truth to our own self-deception. You know, that's why we've kind of made our way through the Minor Prophets this year in our series Together for the 757. Because we see in stunning clarity throughout the Minor Prophets that this community, that God, God has saved us into a community, into a family. And it is that community, that family, rightly living together that best testifies to the grace of our God. So if you've missed any of our Minor Prophets series, I encourage you just to kind of go back and, and refresh yourself. These Minor Prophets, you have these major messages that all speak to ways that we, well, deceive ourselves. This morning, though, we're going right to the end, to the end of Malachi. Clarence, last week, he showed us that Malachi, he's like this quintessential lawyer who's just bringing case after case, charge after charge from God against the people. He will bring six charges against the people. Last week we looked at the first three, so this week we're going to look at the final three charges that God has against the people. Let's go ahead and check it out to see how these people are self-deceived because the crazy thing is, well, we have a lot of these same self-deceptions today. Let's check it out. We're going to begin Malachi chapter 2 verses 17 all the way through chapter 3 verse 5. It reads, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, 
I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in him, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against your sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his rages, the, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So these people, they're, they're self-deceived and they're asking this question, where is God? Where is he? He seems absent. Doesn't seem like he's here. Doesn't really seem to care whether you do good or evil. We can do whatever we want because God seems absent. He doesn't really seem to care. Doesn't really seem like there's any consequences. This God of justice, he doesn't really ever seem to show up. So you just do what you want. You make yourself happy. You understand the people that bring these two primary complaints. They're saying, God, you treat the bad guys like they're the good guys. Everyone who does evil seems to get ahead. It seems like you delight in them. What they're doing is they're reversing that age-old question. Why do bad things happen to good people? They're just asking it the other way. Why do good things happen to bad people? Because they're saying, God, don't you see? Can't you see like all the evil is taking place and you seem just to be sitting on your hands? And so the question, second question is this, where is this God of justice don't you see what they're up to? Come on, God, we need you over here. We need some justice here. Where's this God of Mount Carmel? Where's, where's this God of the Red Sea? Where's this God of the 10 plagues who's just going to take out the enemies? That, that was awesome. I mean, we need that God right now, this God of fire and brimstone. Come on, God. And the Bible says that the people are wearying God with their words. That God's actually getting tired of their words. Now, we, we know that God doesn't actually get tired, but, but it speaks to this striking reality that our words weary God. It's almost like a child who's just kind of just kind of nipping at you and just, hey, mom, dad, I, I want ice cream, I want ice cream, I want ice cream, I want ice cream. And you said no a million times. You're like, hey, don't, don't you understand? You had all these pancakes for breakfast. You're not having ice cream with lunch, but they just keep whining, keep begging, keep, and it's, and it's almost frustrating. You're just like, ah, oh, enough. And this is this picture that we see here of God in his perfect holiness, wearied by the constant complaining of his people. And so he replies and he says, behold, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. And Jesus, he's going to pick up this passage in Matthew and he's going to say, hey, when Malachi was writing that, when he was saying that, he was speaking, he was foreshadowing John the baptizer. And so here we see that this is John the baptizer. He's the message who, messenger who's preparing the way for Jesus. 
And at this point, as the people are hearing this, they're probably thinking, all right, it's about time. You know, you got someone coming to prepare the way. And then God's coming in. This is going to be good. We're feeling good. High fives all around. This God of justice is about to show up. And then Malachi continues. And he says, hey, when he comes, who can stand? And the people, they're still thinking, well, this is what we want. God's coming to get the enemies now. God, he's going to roll up his sleeves. He's going to take them out. He's going to get down to business. He's going to show our enemies just exactly what he's made of. It's about time. And then he continues to verse 5. And he says, I will draw near to you for judgment. Well, that's not what they had in mind. (laughs) This is that uh, age-old uh, saying, you know, be, you better be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. This is what the people are asking for. They're, they're crying out, God, will you look around? Will you see all the evil? Will your justice come? And God says, you know what? You're right. I'm going to send my messenger ahead and then I'm going to come. And when I come, who can stand when I bring out my judgment, when I actually do uh, avenge all the evil that's going on? And you know what? When I do that, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to start with you. And why am I starting with you? Because you're guilty. And then he lists for them these seven sins, your sorcerers, your adulterers, your liars, your defrauders, you're guilty of all this stuff. Seven, that's representative of the whole. I mean, you think about what, what you could do wrong, you've done it, you're guilty of it. And so I'm starting with you. But at the same time, this judgment, God says that I'm also coming in a way that's like a refiner's fire. That I'm going to remove all the impurity from my people. That I'm going to make covenant keepers out of covenant breakers. He's like that metal worker who's just, who's just taking this piece of iron. And it's on the anvil. And he's just pounding and pounding and pounding this, this piece of iron into the sword. To the point where he can see his reflection in it. And he just pounds away at it. See, see God, he's going to have his way with you. That's, that's the point of all this. God's going to have his way with his people. And God is in the business of making worshipers for himself. And it's a refining work to be a worshiper. You know, when we talk about worship, we'll ask, oh, how was worship today? And what we're really saying is, you know, how'd how'd it make you feel? How'd you like it? You enjoyed the message? You liked the songs? How was it? What did you think about it? Now, feelings are good. Thoughts are good. All That's fine. But true worship Oh, it's much more than feelings. It goes deep. It means being purified. It means being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. What it means to be a true worshiper, if if you're really passionate about worship, if you say, oh, I love worship, it means that you're ready for the Lord's flames. It means that you're ready for God to do his his purifying work in your life. You're ready for this refiner's fire. Be prepared that if you want to be a worshiper in spirit and in truth, that you're going to feel the flames. You're going to feel some of that pounding as God shapes you and refines you more and more into the image of his son. And because God's looking at you and he says, no, you, you still got to repent of this. I still need to chisel this away. You still need to look more like my son here. There's still this polishing, this refining, this sharpening that needs to happen. If we want to be true worshipers, we got to be prepared for the refiner's fire. I need that. I need that pounding. I need those flames. And you do too. We all need that to be more and more to look like Jesus. 
because it's only through the flames that those will be able to stand on that day. David said in Psalm 71, it was good for me to be afflicted. Why? So that I might learn your decrees. If we want to be true worshipers, we got to be prepared for the refiner's fire. You know, we tend to be so self-deceived thinking that when God sends his judgment, that it always needs to be on those bad guys over there. That come on, God, come on, God, go send your judgment on them. Get them, make them repent, make them change. You know, we rarely think that the changing needs to be in us, that God's judgment really needs to be on us. We're, we're oftentimes, we have this gift of knowing what's wrong with everybody else, but we're self-deceived and we miss the purifying that needs to take place in our own life. You know, there's a couple questions that I want to give you that really help get to the heart of what type of worshiper you are. The first question is this, how often do you complain about something? The second question is this, how often do you repent over sin in your own life? And the third question is, which do you do more frequently? If you find yourself complaining more than repenting, well, it shows you just how in need you are of the refiner's fire, of that pounding on the anvil of God's truth to form and to shape you. So now we're going to look at the fifth argument that God will bring through his prophet Malachi against the people. It's found in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Let's go ahead and check it out. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need... I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The argument begins here, as it often does in these cases that Malachi is bringing, with this theological fact. And the theological fact here is that God does not change. This is the doctrine of God's immutability. And this is terrific news for the sons of Jacob, for Israel, because Israel deserves to be devoured. Israel deserves to go the way of Edom. Israel deserves the, to be swallowed up the way Egypt was in the Red Sea. Israel deserves the punishment that the Assyrians got. But because God does not change, because God is immutable in his character, in his essence, in his eternal purposes, well, God is going to keep the promise that he's made to Israel. And so God, he's saying, hey, I'm not going to turn aside. And these people who've seemingly run out of chances, well, God does not run out of mercy. And so he says, return to me. And then their argument starts and they say, how are we supposed to return to you? We don't feel like we ever really left. And God says, well, you can return to me by stop robbing me. And they say, how have we robbed you? We haven't taken anything from you. And God says, You've withheld your tithes and your contributions. 
And so we have this general rule throughout the Bible. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. You remember Jesus quoting that to Satan. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And yet here, and I believe it's the only time in all of scripture that God actually says, test me. Go ahead and test me. See if you can outgive me. See if you can be more generous to me than I am to you. Just, just see that. And then at the end of your days, you, you know what you're never going to say? Oh, man, my fatal flaw was I was just too generous. If I had just given less, oh, that, that would have made life a whole lot better. And so God is test, he's saying to the people, you test me. You bring the full tithe. Because if you don't, you're robbing me. One of, one of the clearest examples of a heart that's transformed by God is this whole new attitude towards money. The Israelites, they're giving half-heartedly. It's half-hearted obedience. And God says, a partial tithe is no tithe at all. It's no obedience at all. And what's a tithe, right? I mean, it's this very churchy language that we use. It simply means a tenth. And in the Old Testament, that was the standard. That was the standard that was put in place from the law of Moses, that you give a tenth. However, in the New Testament, Jesus, he takes all these standards, all these laws and commands, and oftentimes he just kind of adds to them. And you know how he does this, right? In the Old Testament, it's do not murder. And then Jesus, he'll come along and he'll say, no, 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 it's not just do not murder. You can't hate anybody. In the Old Testament, there's this law, do not commit adultery. And then Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 it's not just don't commit adultery. It's don't look at anyone lustfully. In the Old Testament, there's this, hey, set aside this day, this Sabbath day for rest. And then Jesus comes along and he says, no, I want you to rest in me every moment of every day. In the Old Testament, there was the standard of the tithe, that a tenth of what you have, really you're just stewards anyway, so you just give it back to God. And then Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he says, no, I want you to be cheerful givers. I want you to give abundantly, generously. There's no set amount. It's just assumed that, well, Jesus is always upping the ante. So if it was a tenth year, well, that's the... That's the floor. It's not the ceiling. It's not, well, let me see if I can work up to 10. No, that, that's going to be like the floor. You know, I realize that right now things are tight. Got gas prices seemingly going up every single day, inflation at 40-year highs and all this kind of stuff. So I know things are difficult. However, if, if you just kind of look back, a recent study, study showed that the average churchgoer gives about 2.5%. <laughs> you know what? That's less than churchgoers gave during the time of the Great Depression. So it's kind of a sad statistic. However, at the same time, what we see is that those who do give, that those who do give, astoundingly, 77% give more than 10%. It's as if that those who are actually taking God at his word, putting him to the test, sees that God actually is generous, that he actually does stand up to his word, that, that his word is reliable and trustworthy, and I can't get out give God. And so there's this principle to build on, that yes, the 10% give it, but that's, that's the floor. And sometimes the question, well, do we give 10% net or 10% gross? You know, it's the floor. It's where you start. So just start somewhere at this if, uh, net gross. It doesn't matter. But then build up from there. The reality is anyway that everything belongs to God. We're just called to be stewards. We're, we're just called to steward it all well. And so God says, it's all mine. Stop robbing me. That's how you return to me. You stop robbing me because your lack of generosity 
it proves that you've turned away from me. So you want to know how to return to God? God says it's not just about attending a worship service. It's not just about, you know, raising your hands or getting excited. It's not just about a feeling. It's about your generosity. It's about taking what I'm allowing you to steward and then rightfully giving it back to me. If you want to turn back to God, you cultivate a heart of generosity. So far with these charges that Malachi's brought, we've seen charges concerning grumbling and complaining. We've seen charges concerning generosity this morning. And we're going to conclude, as Malachi concludes, by looking at a charge concerning grace. I want you to see it. It's Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, going through the end of the book, chapter 4, verse 6. It says this, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at the Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The charge of God is your words have been hard against me. And the people say, how have we spoken against you? You almost have to marvel at their level of self-deception here. I, mean, I just want you to think about all that we've seen from Israel just in the book of Malachi. I mean, in Malachi, we see that they are contemptible. They're vow-breaking. They're hypocritical. They're disobedient. They're profaning. They're divorcing. They're oppressing. They're defrauding. They're lying. They're adulterers. They're sorcerers. They're robbers. They're grumblers. They're complainers. They don't fear the Lord. And now they're saying, what? Me? What, what, what did I do wrong? Am I guilty of something? Something here? <laughs> and the argument boils down, their argument, it boils down to two points. They're saying, hey, it's vain to serve God. It doesn't even matter if you serve God. What difference does it make? Like some of us, we might say, well, I've been a Christian my own whole life. I don't really know that it profited me a whole lot. I've had to say no to a lot of things. I've had to do these, go to church every Sunday and all these kind of things. Uh, what good has it done for me? And so the people are complaining. What, what does it mean to follow God? I and mean, what, what, what does it profit you? How does it benefit you? Look, look at what the vain people are doing. They're getting ahead. And then the second point is this. The arrogant seem blessed. That these people who are challenging God, 
They seem blessed. Obedience, disobedience, what's the difference? God doesn't seem to care. And then something dramatic happens. Out out of the mass of this complaining and, and whining of just woeful Israel, there's this remnant there's this remnant who's, who's meeting together and they fear the Lord and they're speaking with one another and God's listening in on their conversation and they're talking to each other and they're saying, you know what we need? We, we need to put together this book of, of remembrance and, and just gather the names of those who truly esteem the name of the Lord. And so, so they're writing down these names and it's almost like, are you in? Are you in, does this person really believe this? Are they really committed to this? Do they truly esteem the name of God? You know, that's part of what we do when we join a church, you know, is, is we're really saying, I'm committed to this. I believe this. This matters. God's truth matters. I want it to shape me. I want it to define me. I want to be accountable. I want to be challenged by a group of believers. I want to be in that number. This matters. I'm in. We're in this together. And so God, he gives them this word of grace. He says, take heart because you will be mine. Do you see how precious that is? The God of the universe, the the one who rages with with just anger against, against those who just defraud him and do all these evil things against the wicked. He says, but you who truly esteem my name, you're mine. You're my, you're my most treasured possession. You know, we talk sometimes about treasured possessions. We have all this stuff and it's all junk, really. I mean, at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, most of it just gets thrown away. I mean, maybe it's passed down a generation or two, but eventually it finds its way into a trash can somewhere. But you know what we esteem, what we really esteem? (laughs) It's people, isn't it? It's family. It's our sons, our daughters. And, And that's what God says. He says that you are mine. You're you're like a child to me. You're like my son. God says, take heart. It's not simply that you have me. It's that I have you. You're this treasured possession like a son. Even more, God says that you're going to be vindicated. You're going to see this clear distinction between the wicked and the righteous. When the day of judgment comes, oh, the wicked, it's going to be unbearable for them because God's going to come in wrath. But at the same time, it's going to be a day of righteousness for you and you will rise with healing in its wings. You're going to burst forth like calves from the stall. I just love the imagery there. It's full of energy, full of life because God's grace gives life. God's grace gives life. You know, we can be so self-deceived, can't we? We can miss all this. We can think that life will come from a variety of places. Ultimately, we think that life comes from just like looking within ourselves and trying to make ourselves happy and thinking, this is what I need. This is who I am. This is what I ought to do. And God says, that's all self-deception. You can live these such temporary lives full of complaining and full of chasing thinking, oh, if this happened in a sin-cursed world, listen, life just isn't fair We can think that we know ourselves best, that we know what will make ourselves happy, that we know what will give our lives meaning, that we can live our truth, and that's going to bring about everything that we want. Even in the church, we can be so self-deceived as to think that what I really need is just this private relationship with Jesus. The minor prophets, and in fact, all of Scripture teach us that a relationship with God is never meant to be private. That if you think that you got your own thing going on with Jesus, 
understand that is something, but it, but it is not Christianity. Because in Christianity, we understand that I cannot be complete in Christ, alone in Christ. That I actually need to benefit from the spiritual gifts of my brothers and sisters, and you need to benefit from my spiritual gifts. That God saves his people into a family. Listen, in the church, programs are so easy. It's relationships that's hard. But it's that coming together in unity that is the best testimony of our God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do save us into community, into a family. God, forgive us for when we endeavor on these private enterprises thinking that we know ourselves best and it's just this private faith matter that we have. God, cause, cause us to be people who love you and in so doing, love others, love each other well. We need your help to do that. So we ask this, by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.